Well, hello everybody. This is Pastor Jerry once again, coming at you in your living room or wherever you're at, wherever you're watching or listening. So it's always an honor and a privilege to uh, bring the Word of God before you all. And I'm so grateful for you just connecting with us and uh, listening in. And uh, we're just thankful for that. Again, we're missing everybody. Praise God. You know, here we are again in an empty room, but uh, uh, we're really missing everybody. So we love you all, appreciate you all, and look forward to seeing you all. Praise God. Got a little special treat for you here for this service. So anyway, I hope you enjoy it. I call you blessed in Jesus' name. Amen. Hallelujah. I just want to welcome you to this special day. Today is actually Passover, which we know what Passover was, was when the blood was put on the doorposts of the children of God's household so that the destroyer could not enter in. And in fact, Exodus 12, 23 says that the Lord will pass over the door and not allow the destroyer to come into your houses to strike you. So I'm just in agreement with you that the destroyer will not be able to come into your houses to strike you. Praise the Lord. So let's just pray, and then we're going to open up the word what we have for you today. Father, we are grateful and thankful that on this special day, this Passover day, that the destroyer is not permitted in the households of the people of God. We thank you that the blood of Jesus is over our doorpost, that no evil will come near us, no plague near our dwelling. And we give you praise and we give you thanksgiving for it in Jesus' name. Now we also thank you, Father, for this word that we are about to open. I ask, Father, that you give us all ears to hear what the Spirit is saying, that you give us wills to obey what the Spirit is prompting, and you give us, Father, the ability to know and understand things we've never known and understand before. And we give you praise and thanksgiving for it. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, I talked briefly about how what Passover was, was um, not allowing the destroyer to come into our houses. And today, we may not have a destructive force like there was during the time of the Passover, However, the destroyer is still present in this day and age, trying to get into our homes, trying to destroy and take what does not belong to him. We can see that, especially during this time and the season we're in, that there is a destructive force out there trying to get into the lives of people, but yet the blood of Jesus is enough to keep him from not entering. So I want to open up today to Matthew chapter 24 and just look at a few passages of scripture because we want to see how the enemy would get into our homes. If we are blood bought and blood kept, there should be no access for the destroyer in our homes. So I want to look at how he finds a way in. Um, in the passage of scripture in Matthew 24, verse 4, Jesus answered and said to them, take heed that no one deceives you. And then we see in Matthew 24, verse 24, it says, for false Christs and prof false prophets will rise and show great signs and wonders to deceive, if possible, even the elect. So if we go over to Revelation chapter 12, verse number 9, it says, So the great dragon was cast out, that serpent of old, 
called the devil and Satan who deceives the whole world. He was cast to the earth and his angels were cast out with him. So now we see that this deceiver, who he is by name. In this passage in Revelation chapter 12, he is called the devil and Satan. So the deceiver is trying to get access into our lives. This deceiver called the devil and Satan. And so the tactic he would use to get into our life is a thing called deception. The enemy has come to deceive you because if he can deceive you, he has access into your life. And this passage, these passages in Matthew 24 are written concerning the signs and the times of the last days or the end of the age. So we know especially in this time, the devil is out to deceive people. Now, what does it mean to deceive? The word deceive means to cause to roam from safety, truth, or virtue. It means to go astray, to err, seduce, to seduce one to wander and be out of the way, meaning off the right path, to be affected by outside influence in order to be led in a wrong direction. So the enemy is wanting people to roam, to get off course, to get on the wrong path, to be misdirected. He wants them to get, go astray and cause them to err, especially in these last days. Now, we know that that's his tactic, but if we look back in Matthew 24, verse, uh, Matthew 24, verse 24, it tells us specifically who he is targeting. It says he wants to deceive, if possible, even the elect. So meaning, saying if it's possible, meaning it may not be possible. However, his attempt is to deceive, if possible, the elect. Now, I want to read an excerpt here out of um, Rick Renner, who is a Greek scholar, a sparkling gems that he has concerning this word deceive. And this is found on page 208 in volume two of the sparkling gems. It says in Matthew 24, four, the word deceive is used to depict this period when it will look as if delusion is taking over the world. It is the Greek word planeo, which means to lead astray or to wander off course. I'm not sure I pronounced that correctly. This word could depict a single individual who has wandered far off course, or it could describe a whole nation or nations that have veered from the position once held to be true. This word depicts a person who, although once was established on solid ground, is now morally drifting and teetering on the edge of a crooked and dangerous path. This individual has lost his bearings and has drifted off track. He has begun going cross-grain against all that was once a part of his belief system. 
Now, listen to this. In the years that lapsed between the Old and New Testament, this same word deceive was often used to forecast a wide-scale deception that would one day envelop the earth. It was believed by scholars of that time that this deception would be a precursor to the glorious coming of the Messiah. It was also held that this deception could only occur as a result of the activity of evil spirits that would work intensely in the earth at the very end of the age. Scholars believe these dark powers would lead the world into deception and mass. The Apostle Paul also confirmed this long forecasted deception. In 2 Thessalonians 2, he described distinct events that would occur on the planet at the very end of the age and continue with greater aggression and intensity. He stated that the world's population could become so ensnared in deception that they would be controlled by a strong delusion. This word delusion is translated instead of deception in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 11. But this word, nonetheless, depicts a culture that has strayed so far that it's become beguiled, bewitched, duped, and seduced into believing a lie in place of the truth. Okay, so what deception is, is a working of the enemy, a working of Satan, to try and get us convinced of a falsehood as truth. A falsehood as truth. Not necessarily to believe that the truth is false. But instead what he's trying to do is get us to believe a falsehood as true. Now the difference between a non-believer and a person in the church of God is this. A non-believer is what we call spiritually blind. So he, he or she doesn't see the things of God. But deception, although it is darkness, does not affect the non-believer. Deception is the tool of the enemy that he uses against the believer. Because it, deception in itself has the idea of someone that once knew the truth or was morally correct or was grounded in right things, but then the deception came to knock them off course. A non-believer, an unbeliever is already off course. Okay? So this deceiving is a beguiling, a bewitching, a duping, a seducing into believing a lie in place of the truth. Okay? Now, in Matthew 24, 24, again, we saw that the, um, the elect are the target of this deception. The elect are the target. Now, the word elect here is a Greek word that means the favorite, the chosen, the selected. 
It comes from a combination of a word ek and legos, which ek means out, and legos is to pick or gather by I say. So what the elect are, are the people that have been pulled out of a system by what he has said. He has gathered these people, this elect. He has pulled them out of a large gathering and he's picked them out and said, I call them. So if you have heard the call of God and you have responded rightly to that, that call of God, you are a part of the elect. You are the chosen and you are the favorite. You are the people that he has called out. And the reason the enemy wants to deceive the people of God or the elect is because it's the only way to stop the people of God. Let's go over to Romans chapter 8. Has Pastor Jerry ever told you how much he loves Romans chapter 8? Romans chapter 8, verse number 31. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him also freely give us all things? Who shall bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is he who condemns? It is Christ who died. And furthermore is also risen, who is even at the right hand of God, who also makes intercession for us. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or peril or sword? As it is written, for your sake we are killed all day long. We are counted as sheep for the slaughter. Yet in all these things we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. So according to this passage of scripture, there is nothing in this life that can be done to us that could separate us from God. There is nothing in this life that can be done to us that could ever separate us from God. Let's look at Romans 8, 38 and 39 in the Passion Translation. It says, so now I live with the confidence that there is nothing in the universe with the power to separate us from God's love. I'm convinced that his love will triumph over death, life's troubles, fallen angels, or dark rulers in the heavens. There is nothing in our present or future circumstances that can weaken his love, referring to his love for us. There is no power above us or beneath us, no power that could ever be found in the universe that will distance us from God's passionate love, which is lavished upon us through our Lord Jesus, the anointed one. There is nothing in this universe that can distance us from God's love. 
So there's nothing that can be done to us, nothing that could ever be done to us that would separate us from God. So the enemy, knowing this, knows that the only thing that could ever separate us from God is our choice. Because we can choose to be distanced from God. We can choose to be separate from God. We can choose to have division between us and God. We can choose to not have God as primary or priority. We can choose that. So the enemy works to influence our choosing so that we in our choice permit a separation from God. He works to convince us and to persuade us to make a choice that will allow a gulf between us and our Heavenly Father, even though our separation was already dealt with when Jesus dealt with the sin. So what the enemy is trying to do in our life is trying to get us to put God on the back burner or aside even for a season. And if he's going to do that, if he can just convince us to put God aside for a while or to put God as not primary or priority, if he can convince us for just a season, he becomes winning in our choice. He begins to win in your choosing, okay? See, the enemy never comes in and pushes on us, just make a wrong decision. He works in subtleties, not domination, because we will not accept his domination, but we sometimes accept his suggestion. He works to get us to relax in our walk with God to make comfort a priority. He works to cause us to be weary or cause us to be too busy or to change our priorities or to get us distracted. The enemy works subtly in all of those things because his end mission is to cause you to choose not God. However he does it in our life, it's all to bring us to the place to not choose God. Now, we, we are wise enough and probably in God far enough that we say, well, I'm, I'm never going to not choose God. But God doesn't measure us by what we voice. He looks at us about what's in our heart. So God is looking on our heart to see, are you choosing me? Are you keeping me as top priority? Am I primary? Meaning, do I have access to every area of your life? He's looking at our heart. And sometimes unknowingly, we are not necessarily choosing God. That's the, in, that's the purpose of deception. Hallelujah. So let's look at some of these things of subtleties or strategies of the enemy, areas he works to get us to make a choice that is not God-breathed. The first thing he does 
is he feeds us misinformation. He feeds us data or information or facts or figures or reports or uh, whatever he can um, to get us misled. Um, you know, Ephesians 5 tells us not to be misled with empty words, meaning some words are really empty. The only thing they've got in them is a, a, a drive and a desire to mislead you. Let's look at Colossians chapter 2, verse 9, and we're going to look at it in the King James, New King James, and then we're going to look at it in the Passion Translation. Hallelujah. Did I say 2.9? I meant 2.8. All right, Colossians 2, chapter 8. So beware lest anyone cheat you through philosophy and empty deceit. According to the tradition of men, according to the basic principles of the world, and not according to Christ. So he says, beware, lest anyone cheat you. Cheat you is also a misleading or taking you captive by deception. And he says that you are going to be robbed or cheated through philosophy. There's lots of philosophical ideas out there. And empty deceit, according to the tradition of man, according to the basic principles of the world, and not according to Christ. And we look at this, philosophy, tradition, principles of the world, all of those are about information and data being fed to us. Now, the Passion Translation says it this way, beware that no one distracts you or intimidates you in their attempt to lead you away from Christ's fullness. See, it's not just to lead you away from Christ, but to lead you away from Christ's fullness, the whole package deal. He wants to lead you away from everything that is truly available in Christ. And the way he's going to do it is give you information, data, leadings of the world, traditions. All of these things are meant to give you enough data that you lose out on the full package that's available in Christ. Their attempt to lead you away from Christ's fullness by pretending to be full of wisdom when they're filled with endless arguments of human logic. For they operate with humanistic and clouded judgments based on the mindset of this world system and not the anointed truths of the anointed one. So they've pulled information together based on functions in the world system and trying to persuade you with that information, and as they can persuade us with that information, deception has found a place, and eventually we walk away from the fullness of what Christ has already provided. It's this mis misinformation. We have to understand that we cannot live any longer with one foot in God and one foot in the wisdom of the world. God's wisdom always comes to us through leadings of the Spirit and then is confirmed by another. 
God's wisdom or man's wisdom does not have the confirmation from the inner man within a believer. Okay? And so, you know, God's wisdom and man's wisdom, the two sometimes don't even look alike. You know, it is not man's wisdom that says, give and you'll have more. Man's wisdom says, you better hold all you've got to increase. But God's wisdom is a different type of wisdom. And sometimes it is completely opposite of what man's wisdom is. And we have to understand this, what deception is. We have the ability to believe what is true, but we also have the ability to believe what is false. And sometimes we need to wake up to the fact that not all of our opinions are accurate. They're just what we believe. That's the nature of deception. The, the difficulty of deception is no matter how false it is, we can absolutely believe it's true. And a truth to you does not mean a truth to God. Just because it's true to you does not validate it's true to God. And so that's why we need the word because when we see what we see in the word is true to God and it is established truth for all of mankind, regardless of counter opinions or thoughts. Always remember that deception is to believe something is true when in the kingdom of God, it's actually false. Or in the way the kingdom of God operates, it's actually false. So the enemy works deception by subtly misleading us with wrong information. The second way he gets in and to deceive us is through our priorities and obligations. And what happens in this is we get so busy that we lose track of how well we are following God or how much input God is really giving. In a situation like this, we tend to go about our day hoping it's blessed by God instead of just sitting and waiting till God shows us what's blessed. And what happens is we begin in this type of deception, we get, begin to make our own rules of what's important. When our priorities and obligations get off, we go to making our own rules of what it's important. And you can think of it like this. You might have a project or you might have a family at home or a business or a job or whatever. And what the enemy does is he deceives us into thinking that if you just get it done, then you can be fervent. If you can just get it done, then you can give more time to God. When your kids are raised and gone, then you can give more time to God. When this happens, when you get this project done, then you can give more time to God. But the truth of the matter is God is weighing our heart all the time. And if we don't see God as the primary while the project, while the kids are home, while the business is here, while the job is to be done, if we're not seeing him as primary then, it's less likely we're going to see primary, him as primary later. Because the enemy has found a way to feed you a deception that delays your walk in God. And once you bit that bait, 
then he's going to continue to feed you deceptions and just move where the priority or the obligation or the primary thing you have to take care of. He will just consider uh, constantly move it to another thing. And you'll never be without something else to do in your entire life. There is never going to be a time. I mean, we're in a shutdown, but a lot of people are busy in the shutdown. So there is never going to be a time when serving God may become convenient for you. But just because it's inconvenient doesn't mean it's not something you're supposed to be doing. Amen. And all of these natural things, the project, the kids, the business, the job, all of these things have an expiration date. So we plan on serving God when, but we never get to the when because we just put him on the back burner. And whenever we need to understand, we use this phrase, we hear this phrase, God understands what I'm dealing with right now, so. And what we use in that phrase is a personal justification for our lack of pursuing him. And so with that having to be personally justified, There is a note to self. We need to know right away we are not in the right place. If you have to personally justify where you're at in pursuit of God, you already know you're not doing it rightly. Let's look at Mark chapter 12, verse 29. Let's hope I got the right verse here this time. Mark chapter 12. And I think Pastor Jerry ministered on this just a few weeks ago. Jesus answered the first of all the commandments. This is the priority of every believer's life. This is the first and top of the orders from heaven. This is the the main agenda. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind, and with all your strength. This is the first commandment. We could say it this way. This is the first command. We could say it this way. There's no other command for you in the earth, no other time occupation. There is no other occupation or project in your life that is more important then loving the Lord with all our heart, all our soul, all our mind, with all our strength. This is the first. This is the first. Everything else then comes below first. Everything else is beneath that. Every other priority, every other matter of importance, every other obligation, every other person, every other situation is beneath the command of first love God. Every one of them is. And what happens is we like obligations that don't require so much of us um, spiritually. We like things to be comfortable. We like things to be easy. But there's always a dividing line. There's a dividing line from the press to the reward. And most people get intimidated by the press so they never get over to the reward. When all truth, what spiritually is it may be oppressed for a season, 
But when you break across the line into what God can do, now all it is is rest. So it's a temporary press for an eternal rest. And remember, the deception is we think we are loving him with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength. But yet, he doesn't personally have a voice in what we're doing. We just keep going on doing what we're doing. Well, if he doesn't have a voice, you're not following the command of loving him with all. Because when you're loving him with all, he has input into our natural life. So we see that the enemy works subtly, in deceiving us by using misinformation or getting us off in our priorities or what's most important. The next thing he uses is our desires or our wants. Let's look at James chapter 1 verse 14. And I want to look at this passage of scripture. Um, it's short scripture, but we're going to look at it in the passion also. It just says each one is tempted when he is drawn away by his own desires and enticed. So the drawing away happens by our own desires. The Passion Translation says, instead it is each person's own desires and thoughts that drag them into evil and lure them away into darkness. See, it's our own desires that draw us away because we want what we want. It's in it interesting that we can usually find the time, the money, and the energy to do what we want to do. Have you ever noticed how much easier it is to get up to catch a plane to go on vacation than it is to get up to go to the prayer meeting? It's a, it's a working of the enemy, um, misconstruing our desires, um, uh, confusing our focus, because what he knows, if I can get you enough times to choose something else than God, I know that the desire is taking root in you and then the desire will control your life. Yesterday, the Spirit of the Lord gave me this phrase and he said this, how you serve God is determined more by how you spend your free time than your required time. How you serve God is determined more by how you spend your free time than your required time. We have required time. We have time we have to be at work. We have time that we have to sleep. We have time that we have to eat. We have time. And all of those things God wants to be involved in. But what are you doing when there's no thing, nothing pushing on you for your time? when there's no pressure on you for your time. Because those are the moments that you could advance spiritually, you can grow intensely, you can develop deeply, is in those times um, when you have free time. But most of us want our free time to be free time. We all enjoy free time. But what we have to do is we have to get, start getting very honest with ourselves and see and look inside us are we desiring God or not? It's not just a desire about God answering our prayers, but are we desiring 
to have a new discovery of who he is. Because most of us have a great desire for God to answer our prayers. But we have to develop and cultivate a desire just to know him better, to understand him more, to understand his ways. Now, the best part of this is Psalms 37, 4 says that if we'll delight ourselves in him, he'll give us the desires of our heart. Not only give us in answer to our requests what we desire, but he'll literally will plant within us proper desires. See, because our desires sometimes need to be corrected. Have you ever been asked to do something and you don't want to, but you have to stir up the want to in order to have the ability to? Well, it's the same way with spiritual things. Sometimes we have to just say to ourselves, I desire God. I am stirring up a desire and an appetite for the Lord. I am stirring it up beyond what I've ever had before. I want God. I desire God. I desire God everywhere I go and everything I do and start stirring up a desire. Hallelujah. Because our desire can be the cause of us going deeper into God than we've ever gone before. Or they can be the cause of us going farther away from God than we should. But the enemy deceives us in our desire. He deceives us in our wanting. He misleads us by what we want. You know, um, most of us would um, know somebody that was um, deeply addicted or vulnerable or something, to, something that's immoral or incorrect. And we could say, how could they even want to do that? They've cultivated this desire. Well, how did it get there? The enemy made a suggestion, okay? And it created this desire in them. And now the desire has a hold on them that they can't break without the help of the Spirit. So we see that the enemy deceives us subtly by giving us misinformation. He deceives us by changing our priorities or obligations away from God. He deceives us by altering our desires and wants that are not godly. And the last one, the final one is, he deceives us through our feelings and our emotions. He is always trying to get into a feeling mode with you, getting you to feel something. Because most like to walk according to feeling because the feeling is the fragrance of us on the inside. Now, it's, um, we don't have to be convinced of new information. We don't have to be made busy with obligation. And we don't have to have a new desire planted within us. The enemy just has to suggest a feeling. Have you ever noticed how quickly your feelings can change? You can get out, of your, out in your car, leaving home, and you're happy. But by the time you get to work, you haven't even had the radio on. You've been left to your own head and your own thought. And by the time you get to work, you're upset and angry. And it was just because the enemy suggested a different feeling to you. And it's interesting that we may not know what others are thinking. We may not know what others are doing. 
We may not know what others are desiring, but we usually always can tell how someone's feeling because it is the expression of what's going on internally. And because it is the expression, we tend to follow the expression faster than any other thing. Your, your feelings are not your direction for life. Just because you feel something doesn't make it true. Just because you feel something doesn't even make it real. You can feel afraid and there's nothing to be fearful of. Hallelujah. Let's look at, did I give you Jeremiah 17 verse number nine? It's a, uh, a passage of scripture that's probably right to the point. It says, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately wicked. Who can know it? It goes on to say that the Lord searches the heart. So it says the heart is deceitful above all things. And this word heart here is, is, um, is talking about the inner workings, the emotions, the feelings. So those things are deceptive above all things because you will do what you feel even if it's wrong. You will do what you feel even though it can lead you astray. You will do what you feel because you live in reality of your own feelings all the time. You can live by these feelings and if you only ever walk by feelings, you will probably never walk deep as deeply as you could with God because the enemy is always going to season your feeling with an anti-God emotion. He will always put an anti-God feeling in your emotional realm because he is looking. Remember, the destroyer is looking for any way to gain access into your life. So if he just puts a little pepper on your feelings to get you to go away from God. He has succeeded in what he wants to do because eventually you keep walking aside and aside and aside by what you feel. And then one day you wake up and say, oh, that God stuff, going to church, spending time in prayer, it's not really that important because I don't feel that it's that important. Not even understanding that the enemy has worked a deception to bring you away from God. He's worked a deception to cause you to make a choice that is not God-based. So anything the enemy wants to do is considered a deception, but this, this deception often takes place in our emotions because our emotions have the ability to derail us so quickly. So if you look at Proverbs chapter 4, verse 23, he gives us a bit of an antidote about that. In verse 23, he says, Keep your heart or guard your heart with all diligence, and he confirms it, for out of it spring the issues of life. Guard your emotions. Keep your emotions in check. Be willing to refuse 
some feelings. Be willing to refuse some things the enemy is trying to put in your feeling realm. When he tries to put loneliness in your feeling realm, refuse it. When he tries to put abandonment in your feeling realm, refuse it. Why? Because you're guarding your heart because if it gets in your heart, it's going to affect an issue in your life. It's going to come out as an issue. And then if we get enough in there, then our issues have issues and we just have issues coming out all over. And it started out simply is he got a hold on us by putting something in our emotional feeling area. Hallelujah. So we have to guard our emotions or corral our feelings. Let's say it that way. So we see that the enemy deceives us or pulls on us. Remember, it's subtly seducing us. He subtly seduces us and gets us to bite on some information that's wrong. That, well, I could see that maybe, possibly. You're opening the door for deception. The next thing is he, he seduces us or pulls us aside by giving us a different priority. Well, at this time of my life, at this season, you know, there's never a good time to put God to the back or to put God aside. There is never a good time. But the enemy works on us to make us think that it's okay. He works on us to get us to desire something else. I just want something else right now. I want something else. Desires is probably the single most thing that has pulled more people out of God than any other thing. Most people don't have a calamity or tragedy that takes them out. What happens is their desires and wants after the calamity and tragedy have shifted so they don't want God anymore. That is probably the thing that takes more people away. And more people probably struggle in the fact how the enemy works in their feeling realm that they don't feel this. They don't feel that. They don't feel this. They don't feel it's important to serve God. Well, it doesn't matter how many days you wake up and feel that God shouldn't have to be the one that you love with all your heart, soul, and mind, and strength. Just because you don't feel it doesn't make it less truth. It is the truth whether you feel like it or not. So the enemy's working all this. So how are we going to keep from deception? The first thing we have to recognize and know is Jesus was our perfect example of never being deceived. Jesus was never deceived. And it was because the truth of God was constantly flowing into him that there was no place for deception. When your capacity is full of truth, not your truth, his truth, when your capacity is full of his truth, there isn't room for deception. And we notice that Jesus aggressively refused deception. Remember when Peter came to him and Jesus said he was going to die and go to the cross and all these things? And Peter said, not so, Lord. Peter was trying to give him some different information. He was trying to mislead him. He was going to bring him astray. And Jesus turned around and said, get behind me, Satan. 
He aggressively fought off anything that would come against the deception, that would come against him walking where he needed to walk. He was aggressively coming against deception. Now, the other thing that was so great about Jesus, he knew his spiritual purpose and he never deviated. You know, we see in Luke 4, 18, the spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me. And we see in Acts 10, 38, how Jesus went about, go, went about doing good and healing all. Jesus knew his purpose. He knew the plan of God for his life. And it's so important that we come to understand our purpose and our place in the earth. Okay? And the reason it becomes so important, because one of the ways the enemy will deceive us is through not knowing who we are. It's important to know you who you are so that you become aware of who you aren't. When you know who you are, you'll also know who you aren't. And what happens if we don't know who we are and we don't know who we aren't, we become unaware of our own spiritual condition. We don't even realize that we're not fervent. We don't realize we're not passionate. We're, we're not realizing because we don't know who we are, so we don't know what we're supposed to be doing. And so we have to clue in to becoming who we are in Christ. This is to keep deception out. So the first thing we have to do to keep deception out is to look at Jesus as the master over deception and do what he did. If someone is never deceived, then I'm going to do what he did. And he filled himself with the word. He filled himself with prayer time. He filled himself with serving and loving others. He filled himself with compassion and kindness. He filled himself with that. And the second thing is, is we have to be willing to repent. Hallelujah. To think that we are going to have a different life without making a change in itself is deception. We are going to have to make a change in order to get a different life. Well, you know, and we may think, well, I'm pretty happy with my life as it is. I don't mind my life the way it is. I don't mind how it is. But are you in the fullness of Christ that's been offered to you? Or is there pieces and components? Is there parts that are not working as well as they should? Are there pieces that are not under the anointed one and his anointing? Hallelujah. Any change that you make in your life that will, because we're talking about making a change in order to get a different life, but any change that you ever make in life that draws you back from that first commandment of loving God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and draws you back for serving him, any change that you make in that direction is a change you're making in the wrong deception and the wrong direction, and deception is probably the cause of it. Because anytime you deviate from that first command, then there is deception present. Hallelujah. And sometimes we don't talk a lot about repentance. 
And because we would like to think everything is wonderful, everything is okay. But in all truth, if the church is going to be without deception, the church has to be readily available to repent. Okay? Um, if we look um, at some of the, these are just some of the things that the Spirit of the Lord gave me that the church needs to be willing to repent from. Um, repenting from being dull spiritually, meaning I'm not excited about God. I go to church, go home, to pre- uh, study the Sunday school lesson, teach the Sunday school lesson, but there's not an enthusiasm and an excitement for the things of God. We need to repent of that. Repent for being casual in God, that we're looking for an easy way instead of God's way. Uh, Repenting of being fearful. Fear has no place in a child of God. Repent for prayerlessness. I probably should pray more, but I don't. I don't want to. So now the enemy has deceived you in the area of your desires and wants. Okay? Repent for selfishness. Well, if I don't take care of me, who will? Wrong priority. Well, I just feel like I have to. Wrong feeling. I just want to. Wrong wanting. And the only way to really squash deception and keep it out of our life is a readiness to quickly repent when the enemy is working on us. We have to deviate from the wrong road in order to get on the right road. Repent for disobedience. Repent for unyielding to God. There are some that God has quickened and quickened and quickened and quickened. Lay that down. Stop doing that. Don't eat that. Don't drink that. Don't smoke that. Don't be there. Don't do that. Constantly working and working and working. And what happens is he works on us and quickens to to us and we try it for a moment and then it doesn't work. So we hope God's forgotten about it. But if God is quickening it to you, The grace is present. The divine influence is on you to be free from it. And then what happens is we go along and what happens is time makes the severity of that disobedience wane. So now it's not that big a deal. When all along it is still a disobedience. See, because wherever repentance is needed and it is not accomplished, growth and development has stopped. Wherever repentance is needed and it has not been done or accomplished, growth has stopped. Um, Another thing is uh, repent of being offended. Um, The word offended just means this, refusing to forgive. Refusing to forgive. And we hold on to offense with people from our past, people that we're living with, people that have done things to us, people we don't even know. Because somehow that feeling 
when we're, in, when we're offended, confirms to us that they did wrong, so I was right, or they ought to pay for what they've done to me. But all of those things are deceptions and darkness because wherever there's an offense, there's no more growth in God. Because God says, if you don't forgive them, I can't forgive you. And if God can't forgive you, he can't move you any farther up. He can't move you upward. There must come a time when the church is willing to acknowledge and know there is need of repentance in our life. Let's look at 1 John chapter 1, verse number 8. 1 John chapter 1. Let me get there. It's a familiar passage of Scripture. It says this, If we say we have no sin, let me say it this way. If we say... We have no reason to repent. If we say we have nothing that we need to repent for, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us because the truth is always a revealer of what needs to be repented of. And so if you say, there's nothing there I have to repent for, there's nothing in me. See, we all have the nature of sin And we all have a vulnerable nature to the things of darkness. And all repentance does is I'm going to change and not become vulnerable to that anymore. I'm going to change and modify what I believe. I'm going to change and start yielding to God in this area. And you'll have to cross that line. There will be a press to cross that line. But once you get over on the other side of it, you'll experience complete and total freedom. Because repentance is the answer to divinely align your spirit, your heart again with God. So if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, meaning we acknowledge them, we acknowledge what we've done wrong, we acknowledge where our sin is, I acknowledge, Father, that I have not been yielding to you properly. I acknowledge, Father, that I haven't been praying like I know I ought to. I acknowledge, Father, that I've been holding this ought against this person. I acknowledge to you, Father, that I've not been thinking of you first and foremost. I acknowledge to you, Father, that you haven't been the priority of my life. I acknowledge to you, Father, that my business has taken my attention off of you. I acknowledge this to you, Father. And he says, if you will do that, he is faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So what he's going to do is he says, okay, it's done. And he says, now let me clean it off of you so that it doesn't have any more hindrance in our communion. And if we say that we've not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. Again, that truth of the word will shine light on whatever we need to repent from. See, because repentance is not about just an activity that I'm doing outside. Repentance is about the condition of my heart on the inside. Repentance is not what I shouldn't do, but repentance should be about what I don't want to do ever again. See, some people repent because they did something they shouldn't do. 
And God's wanting repentance to be used as something you don't want to do so that your desires now have aligned with God, what God wants and needs from you. You can, true repentance um, can't be phony because repentance will always reveal a pursuit. You know, to think that I can continue disobeying God or putting God aside and say, say, I'll repent, I'll repent, I'll repent and go on. That means that that's not true repentance because repentance by nature has an admission and then has a change. It has an admission and then a change, not just admission and not just change. And um, this is the phrase he gave me, accepting Jesus keeps you from going to hell eternally, but repentance keeps you from living like hell perpetually. Accepting Jesus keeps you from going to hell eternally, but repentance keeps you from living like hell perpetually. And we just need to know we will either repent and make our heart right for God, or we will regret and wish we would have made our heart right for God. So we want to be in the time, the season of repenting. And anytime you have to self-defend your condition in God, it's because there is a, a thought or a concern that God wouldn't defend us. You know, like Daniel, never even when uh, they went to throw him in the lion's den, he never retaliated and went into self-defense because he knew God would defend. Hallelujah. So right now in the earth, we are in a season and time of labor pains for the coming of the Lord. And right now is a time to be fervent. We don't need any more signs to know that we are in the last days. And our enemy is unseen and he is working on us. He is working on us. And as you see, we are, we've been working on this virus. They've been working against an unseen enemy and they don't know where it is. But sooner or later, it reveals itself by somebody getting symptoms. And it's the same way with deception. Deception is an unseen thing. And if it's not kept in check through filling ourselves with God or repenting when we've missed God, sooner or later, it's going to come forward. And we're going to see it on people's emotions. They're going to be angry. They're going to be distraught. They're going to be fearful. They're going to be disappointed. All these kind of things. But yet, if we will watch it in the spirit, if we'll be watchful in the spirit to keep out deception, then there'll never be an outbreak. If we watch for the deception and either overcome it with truth or we overcome it and set our heart right by repentance, then it will never have an outbreak because it's time for the church not to have an outbreak, but a breakthrough. So um, if you want to get something real, you have to repent and be real about it. Let's look at that last passage of scripture that we have there. Second Chronicles 7, 14. If my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face, and turn from their wicked ways. Then I will hear from heaven, forgive their sin, and heal their land. If my people who are called by my name humble themselves and pray and seek my face, that in itself is speaking of repentance. 
repenting for being too busy for God. Sometimes we need to repent for this fact. We think this earthly life is forever. We get lost in the deception of this is what it is forever or what we have to do. But he promises if we are a people that will repent and turn to him, he will heal our land. Amen? Praise the Lord. Hope you got something today and that you're willing to fill yourself with God and be willing to repent if necessary. Amen? Let's pray. Father, I thank you that we are a people that are soft and pliable to you, that we do love you with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, that we are a people that are quick to forgive, quick to repent, and quick to turn to you. Help this word work on us and in us, Father, that it grows us to a higher stature than we've ever before. Help us to be obedient. Help us to be responsive to all that you want for us, that we can receive the fullness of Christ in every area of our life. For that, we give you praise, we give you honor, and we give you the glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you for joining us for this message. We'd like to take this opportunity to encourage those listening from anywhere in Central Oregon to join us Sunday mornings at 10 a.m. and Wednesday evenings at 7 p.m. for our regular services. We understand that many do not have a home church, and we can't emphasize enough the importance of connecting with a church family. We'd be honored to meet you and spend time with you praising God.